That was awesome, wasn't it? I, uh, I like hearing all the children's voices and I like hearing the activity. You know, it seems like a, a good time just to kind of state this again. Haven't really stated it in a while, but we are glad that the children are here with us in church. I would, I would far rather hear a little noise and shuffle in the church from active young people than for it to be completely silent and no young people. And so uh, I know that coming to church with little ones can be challenging, moms and dads, but we are glad that they are here. And uh, just want to encourage that uh, yet again today. Well, before we pray, um, I, I want to kind of set up our time of teaching today, our time of reflection on the Bible. <clears throat> and that is to kind of tie in what we have been talking about in these last couple of weeks as we've been looking at uh, some of the stories from the book of Mark. Peter, the disciple Peter, the apostle Peter, had been, after resurrection, after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he had been going around proclaiming, telling his personal memories, his personal testimony of Jesus. And he'd been doing this for quite some time, kind of proclaiming the good news of salvation through Jesus. But as Peter grew older, Mark, a younger follower of Jesus, who had been hearing Peter and others, but hearing Peter tell his stories, his testimony, it seems that Mark began to write down Peter's stories of, of the things Jesus did and the things Jesus said. And as Mark was kind of curating the stories with Peter's oversight... And with the Holy Spirit's guidance, Mark kind of began to string the stories together to not only tell the story of the life of Christ in, in some uh, orderly way, but also putting the stories and selecting the stories in a way that would reveal important truths. We know from uh, the gospel according to John that not all the stories were written. I think it's John that says if they were all written, there would be no room. And a kind of hyperbole that there would be no space for all of that. So Mark and others, they've selected stories to portray a certain message. We are spending some time considering a section of the gospel according to Mark, which seems to be kind of resourced by the memories and recollections of Peter. And in this section, the close of chapter 4 and on through several chapters... Mark has reported some very profound stories that, that reveal powerful truths about Jesus. Uh, the first sermon that we had in this little short series that we're into, the close of Mark chapter 4, that was the story of Jesus and the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes and, and Jesus stands up and he calms the storm with a peace be still. And in that story, Mark seems to want us to know Jesus has authority over nature. The very next story is when they hit the shore of the other side of the Sea of Galilee and the report of Jesus delivering a, a pitiful demon-possessed man, delivering him from evil named the Legion by saying, come out of him and let it be so. The story of the demons leading into the swine. But Mark seems to tell us that story because he wants us to know Jesus not only has authority over nature, Jesus has authority over supernature, the supernatural realms. The following story 
is the story of the, the healing of, of the woman who, who reached out and, and touched the edge of Jesus' garment. She had been ill for 12 years from a bleeding disease. And when she touched him, Jesus stops and he says, power has gone through me. It seems that Mark wanted us to hear that story because he's telling us Jesus has authority over disease and sickness. And then kind of couched right after that story. It actually kind of begins before that one, but it ends after that particular story at the close of Mark chapter 5. We have Jesus with a few of his disciples entering into the room of Jairus' daughter who was 12 years old. His daughter had died, but Jesus speaks over that little lifeless body, Talitha Kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up, and she does. She resurrects from being dead. Mark tells us that story because he wants us to know that Jesus has authority, not just over nature, not over supernature, not just disease. He has authority over death. Today, what we'll look at is the next two kind of reports, according to Mark. And it doesn't really deal so much with communicating the power or the authority of Jesus. But it is going to speak to how we respond to who Jesus is and his power and authority. It makes a significant difference. It kind of boils down to this, and then we'll pray. Those who refuse to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be will not experience his power in their lives. But those who believe that Jesus is who he claims to be will experience the power of Jesus in their lives. Let's unpack that further in the next few verses of Mark. But before we do that, uh, let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Spirit's guidance as Mark put these stories together. And Lord, today as we uh, look into it a little bit further, uh, we pray for your, your blessing. Send us your Spirit. Uh, Lord, I'm beginning to pray more often because I think it's so important Give each of us here the ability to kind of um, put aside that which distracts us and to have that kind of gift of some spiritual attentiveness for just a little while here. As we interact with your word, I pray that your word would come through and it would speak to every heart in just the way that is needed today, just what you want to say and give us ears to hear. Lord, help me to do well with your word and I just pray for your blessing. In your name we ask these things. Amen. So, continuing on, in the flow of Mark's writings, Jesus and his disciples left the hometown of Jairus and entered into Jesus' childhood hometown, Nazareth. It reads this way, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many of the listeners were astonished or amazed. We know the story. Jesus was born in in Bethlehem, 
And then Joseph, by direction of an angel, he took Mary, he took the baby Jesus and fled to Egypt to escape Herod's death decree for little boys. There safely in Egypt, the word came, some time had passed, Herod has passed away and with him that particular threat. And so by direction, they return from Egypt, but they do not return back to Bethlehem. They settle themselves in a little village called Nazareth. Nazareth had no real special distinctions or honor at this time. Now it's pretty special. It's, the, it's where Jesus grew up. That holds its own kind of notoriety. But at that time, the little village of Nazareth wasn't anything special. It was just a, a small little village of working class people. Uh, some who study these types of things have suggested that at that time, Nazareth was probably only a population of about five to six hundred people. So a pretty small little village. And, and one insight we have in the Bible that kind of gives us a clue that Nazareth was just a simple little place with a humble little reputation is that moment in John chapter 1 when Philip has had an encounter with Jesus the Messiah and he goes to tell Nathanael about it. And the Bible says that, um, that, that Philip comes to Nathanael. He says, Nathanael, we have found him whom Moses in the law... And also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathanael, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael then, of course, says back to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, trust me, come and see. I don't think... Those were literally critical words. They were just saying, look, Nazareth, it's just a little tiny village. There's nothing important about that village. Are you telling me that the Messiah, the most important figure of all of the hopes of prophecy, came from such a no-name place? It wasn't saying Nazareth was an evil place. It just held no significance. So can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, as Jesus was going home, so to speak, he didn't enter Nazareth the way that he had left. We don't have any account of when he left, but when he's returning in this moment, he's not returning as just kind of a hometown boy looking to catch up with some old friends. The Bible says he's entering with his disciples, meaning just the visual of that little caravan coming was, was clearly distinct in Jewish culture. He was arriving as a rabbi. Arriving as a, a, a teacher with status. He, the teacher had his students with him, the disciples. And in that day and age, rabbis, though they, they weren't wealthy, they didn't hold like political power, so to speak, but in the religious culture, they were important. Rabbis held influence. They, they held value. And here comes Jesus as a rabbi with his disciples. Have you ever had the chance to kind of go home? Some of you homes just right here, so you just kind of drive through it every day. And, but some of you are living right here, right now, very far away from where, where you grew up. That's place of your childhood home. I, I've had that opportunity. I, I grew up in a very small little rural town of southern Ohio, central southern Ohio called Minford. And uh, actually, I didn't even live in Minford. I lived outside of Minford. 
And, uh, and I've had occasions to go home, my grandmother's uh, funeral, uh, a couple of other occasions over the years since I've lived here. And, and it's just a nice feeling to go back. You know, it, it, you go home and, and, and as you're driving, things are different, but so much is the same. And what I was struck by is that the hills were the same. And the trees that were in the fields were the same. And, and though things had changed, the houses were in the same place. And even driving to my childhood home, the home is well cared for. And it, and it looks different than it did. But it's, that's my home. I recognize it. And there's just that warm feeling of kind of connecting to childhood. I, I wonder if Jesus, when he was heading towards Nazareth, if he was kind of, this is, I'm looking forward to this. This is my place. I wonder if Jesus knew how things would go that day. Or did he enter Nazareth with the hopes that absolutely amazing things are going to happen. Because this place is my place. I know this place so well. Sabbath came as they arrived in Nazareth. The Sabbath came and he and his disciples went to a place of worship, the synagogue. And at these gatherings, they didn't call it a pulpit, but essentially a pulpit with a Torah was kind of an open pulpit. And the synagogue ruler would invite men to come and read a portion of what we would call the Old Testament scripture. And then the men would read and maybe they would expound what they believed to be true and what they had learned about that particular selection. And, and Jesus, not forcing himself... A synagogue ruler would have had to invite him, but Jesus must have been invited to, to kind of take the pulpit. He read some portion of the Torah, and then he, he expounded upon it about what he had read, and his listeners listened to his exposition, his explanation of what he had read, and the Bible says they were astonished. They were hearing a teacher teach in ways they hadn't heard before. They heard what so many others had heard. There was a new power, a new authority, a new clarity that Jesus brought forth from the Word of God. Were they amazed? Absolutely. But in their amazement, it actually wasn't positive. You can see their attitude in the rest of verse 2. The many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Notice, he hadn't done any miracles yet, but they've heard the reports. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at Jesus. Attitudes. Bias. The text doesn't specifically mention it. But I think it comes quite clear that there's no doubt that the news had reached Nazareth of Jesus' ministry. Nazareth wasn't very far away. It was in this Galilee region that Jesus had been moving and teaching. No doubt they had heard the reports of how Jesus was teaching with authority and, and drawing large crowds. It, it wasn't even out of the realm of possibility that some of the people of Nazareth may have made their way to be a part of some of those crowds of hearing his teaching. No doubt the reports had come back that, that Jesus had been working miracles of, of healing and, and that Jesus even had power over demons and they were being cast out by his word. 
But now, they were personally witnessing this authority. And even though they could not deny that they were seeing something profound, they were astonished. They couldn't come to grips with how it was possible. They were too familiar with Jesus. And they began to posit questions. At least some of the leadership voices were positing these questions of, where did Jesus get this knowledge? Where did this wisdom come from? See, they knew Jesus. They knew that he didn't go to any special schools. If they had any school there in Nazareth, they didn't teach these things. He didn't get it there. We know that he never went to the schools of the prophets where the best and the brightest go. So where is this teaching coming from? And they were doubtful. And then they even said, where, as the reports we had heard, where did he get the power to heal, to deliver, to restore people? It would seem very clearly that 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 old adage, familiarity breeds contempt, was definitely true in this situation. Instead of being the most confident people, having known Jesus his entire life, that familiarity didn't inspire faith, but it made them contempt. Who do you think you are? You're just one of us. To them, he was just a local, common, working class man. Who had gone away and was now coming back like some big shot. To them, he was just a nobody from Nazareth with a suspicious past. To them, Jesus was just merely human. Though God had come down and had become one with humanity, they only recognized his human nature. They were failing to see beyond their prejudice to get a glimpse of divinity within him. Their questions not only revealed their unbelief, but their questions actually kind of hinted towards negative attitudes towards Jesus. And it's in these phrases where they say, isn't Jesus just a builder? The Bible says a a carpenter, but probably just builder is, is a more more accurate description of of what would be reality there. There wasn't a lot of lumber in those terrains, a builder. But they're saying, we know who he really is. In fact, someone said, well, I've, I've hired him several times to come do a job on my property. He's not a rabbi. Who does he think he is? He's just a builder. And then the real one that stabs. Isn't Jesus just the son of Mary? Notice they don't say the son of Joseph. Because that would be the customary way of referring to someone as the son of. Even if the father was dead. And very likely Joseph has passed away for whatever reasons by this point in the story of Jesus. But even if the father had passed away, they still referred to, aren't you the son of, and what would be customary is Joseph. But they say the son of Mary. And some kind of wonder in that statement that they're hinting towards the scandal of Mary becoming pregnant before marriage. 
In other words, isn't this just that illegitimate child of Mary that's been on the fringes of Nazareth this whole time? And then they go a little further. Isn't Jesus just the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and and sisters, plural? In, In other words... They are just average people from an average family. We know all of his, uh, in some descriptions, siblings. And they're all just regular people. Why would he be any different? The bottom line of all their questions is this. They took offense at him. They were offended by Jesus. They, They didn't buy it. They didn't believe him. And maybe they even took it as a little insulting that you're coming back here like you're somebody. And we know you're just one of us from this no-name little town of Nazareth. Who do you think you are? Yet they had heard the reports. And they had listened to the teaching. They just couldn't account for what made him so different. And so instead of going one way with faith and belief, they went the other way and became offended. In fact, the word offended there is kind of like the word scandalized, embarrassed, like there's some kind of a scheme going on here. What kind of charade are you trying to pull over our eyes? Maybe even wondering if it's not of God, then it must be of the devil. So they're being offended in a way that they rejected Jesus caused Jesus to invoke at least kind of a a version, a takeoff of a common Jewish proverb. Jesus says this in the next verse. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Sometimes you have to think it through when you have like this double negative, not without (laughs) And what Jesus is saying in response to their unbelief, he he just recognized the fact that, that, that they were viewing him, they were viewing Jesus as just one of them, and they were unable to recognize that the Messiah was with them. And so Jesus is kind of saying, what prophet or what inspired teacher, or he's saying an inspired teacher is honored everywhere, except among those who can only see him as the the brother or the neighbor next door. They, more than anyone else, had witnessed his character for years. And yet it led to resentment instead of faith because they saw only his humanity. Now this is good news. Jesus truly entered into our journey. He truly did become one with us. And granted, it's a hard thing to kind of wrestle with, fully divine, fully human. It's hard for us to kind of sort that all out, but they could not see the divine. They only saw the human. And I think there's a word of caution built into this story for you and me. And that is to say this, we must be careful to not bring Jesus so fully down to our level In such a way that he just becomes a good guy who taught nice things. Sometimes in our desire to identify with Jesus. 
we bring him all the way down to us. And he becomes just that buddy that lives next door. It's true. Jesus did become human in order to truly enter into our experience. But he was not just a created being born as we are. Jesus is God in the flesh. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, Jesus is the Word of God, the Word who became one with us, but He is still the Word. John 1, 1, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God. Jesus is God from the beginning. Jesus so fully identified with us in our humanity that we sometimes forget that He is God the Son. He is the one who holds power over the natural world. He is the one who holds power over the supernatural world. He is the one who holds power over sin and disease. He holds power over life and death. In fact, after the cross, after the resurrection, when he was ascending back into the heavens, he spoke a word of truth. He says, listen, all authority in heaven and earth, all authority has been given to me. We must remember that that Jesus that seems so familiar to our walk is also God in the flesh. The son of the living God. Whatever phrases you can give. The king of kings and lords of lords. And I just caution you and me to be careful not to reduce Jesus to just another created being who had a beautiful calling. Jesus is God. The results of failing to recognize and believe in Jesus for who he truly is, who he claimed to be, were very depressing that day in Nazareth. And Jesus could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And Jesus wondered at their unbelief. And then it says in a little detached from the narrative. And he was then going around the village's teachings. Now listen. Jesus showed up there in Nazareth. And on that particular day. With full desire to, to impact lives. To lift broken lives. And to perform miracles of healing. In that special moment when Jesus God was with us. When Jesus came into that village at Nazareth, his hometown, he loved these people. Nothing had lessened his love for the people of Nazareth, even when they didn't understand and they couldn't see who he was and, and their reaction to him was somewhat negative. His love wasn't diminished. Jesus' power to be able to do special things for him wasn't changed. He still held that power. He wanted to do amazing things for the members, the, the villagers of his hometown. But the Bible sadly says he could do no miracle. Except for a precious few who held faith in Jesus. Gentlemen, we lost the screen. He could do no miracle except for a precious few who held faith in Jesus. Only a few. 
Only a few there in Nazareth were blessed by Jesus' touch. Only a few found, found healing from what had pressed them down. And it's good to know. This is good to know because there are moments when we're trying to share about Jesus when it seems like no one will receive the gift. No one is willing to listen and to hear about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. But even when it seems that there's no one who is open to receive, this story still lets us know that there are always some who are open and searching for God's grace and ready to receive it. And as a church family, that's who we're called to reach for. Not those that aren't ready, but those who are ready. And sometimes that's a dramatic minority of who it is we're trying to share with. One person put it this way, we never want to pick the fruit before it's ready, but we don't want to let ripe fruit fall to the ground either. And how did Jesus handle this moment of rejection? It says he wondered at their unbelief. He was astonished at their belief. It would seem that he had arrived in Nazareth expecting a profound, powerful day. And that's not what happened. And he was astonished by their unbelief. You know, the Bible story of Jesus there's only one other time where it says he marveled and was amazed or astonished at someone's faith. And that was the Roman centurion. And he was amazed at that man's faith because it came from such an unlikely source. And here in this story, he is amazed because whom he thought would have tremendous belief held no belief. And that lack of belief shut off the flow of the power of God in their lives. We are then told that Jesus left there and began to go around the surrounding villages there in the region of Galilee, teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't give up. Instead, he, he recognized that, okay, I don't know what all that's about precisely, but the time was not right for Nazareth. And so he moved on looking for those who were ready to believe. In a parallel passage, I think it's Matthew uh, chapter 9, it seems that, that Jesus went through all of the villages of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind, every kind of disease and sickness. And where there was belief, the people witnessed the power of God. My church family, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. He really does. You're his people. And Jesus desires to work in your lives in profound ways. And the way he works in our lives today, sometimes we don't quite understand. How is this working? What is the timeline? I, I, I'm, I'm having a great day and I'm not having a great day. And it, it can be a little difficult to kind of put your finger on, as it were. But Jesus desires. He wants to work in your lives in profound ways. He wants to bless you with the touch of heaven. And so I just appeal to you and to myself, don't shut down the possibilities of his work in your life. 
by just reducing Jesus to a man. By reducing Jesus to just another created being. Don't shut off his power in your life by doing that. Have faith in who Jesus was, is, and forever will be. Remember, when we pray in the name of Jesus, to Jesus, that we're praying to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God the Son, the Savior of the world, the one, the Bible says, who holds all things together, the one who holds all authority in both heaven and earth, the one who says, I will come again and I will take you home and I will put an end to all death and sin and sickness and brokenness and sadness. The one before whom the Bible says a day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You're not just a man. You are the Lord of the universe. Now, I want to take just a few minutes, a few moments in the next few verses. In them, we're going to see that that Jesus was preparing his disciples to carry out the mission of the kingdom of God. And we see in these few verses how amazing it is that when people have belief, even when Jesus isn't physically present, his power can still flow through people's lives. Bible reads this way in the next few verses. And Jesus summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs... And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And then Jesus added, do not even put on two tunics. Well, it's interesting marching orders, isn't it? When Jesus called the disciples, he assured them that I will make you fishers of men. And he had been working on that for some time now. When he had called them to himself as disciples, as a rabbi, he had been teaching them about the kingdom of God. He had been training them on on how to share about the kingdom of God. And he had been modeling for them how to kind of go about it in just a demonstration. They were watching, witnessing how he carried himself in proclaiming the news of the kingdom of God. And, and the time had come, it would seem, for them to gain some, some hands-on practical experience. You've been taught, you've been trained, you've been modeled. It's time to go do it. Jesus was preparing them, not just to be followers, but to be leaders sent out to carry on his mission. Not just learners, disciples, but apostles who are sent to proclaim. They were to be extensions of Jesus. And the Bible says Jesus sent them out in pairs of two. They were to give testimony of Jesus. And in Jewish culture... To which he was sending them to. He says you go in a parallel passage. You go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not to a Gentile mission. This was a Jewish mission if you will. And in Jewish tradition. A witness's account. Is confirmed by at least two witnesses. And it's likely he sent them out in twos. For that reason. 
you are to give witness of a testimony. And twos is the way in the Jewish culture we verify that that is a true testimony. They could go out holding each other accountable. Encouraging each other in this mission. They were complimenting each other in their strengths and their weaknesses. One was good at something and the other was good at another. But even with that, it seems fitting to me that Jesus would send them out in partnerships. Because even though it is difficult for us to fully comprehend, the Bible reveals to us that even God doesn't hold sovereignty over the universe alone. Father, God, Jesus, God, Spirit, God, in oneness working to be God of the universe. They work in partnership. He wants us to work in partnership. There is power in partnership in the work of the kingdom. Jesus invites us to serve him not as solitary individuals, but in a supportive community, not alone. So they were sent, not with their own message, but with the message that had been given to them, the message of repent, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven heaven is here. And they were to go forward, trusting in God's provisions. Now listen, I don't know exactly how to translate what is written in this passage into 2019 modern Western civilization. I don't quite know. Here's the exact corollary to this. But in their time and place, this is what Jesus said. He sent them out with minimal supplies. And it seems clear that he was telling them, you are going forward with minimal supplies. Therefore, you must depend on God even for the basics. He basically said, take your staff, wear your sandals, don't bother taking any food, don't take any bag to kind of keep things in, you're living in the moment, don't bother taking the money belt, and he said only wear one tunic. They, they would often wear kind of an under tunic, and the over tunic was kind of their bedding, their sleeping bag, their blanket for the night, and he says, don't bother taking that one, just wear the first layer. And again, I don't know exactly how to translate that into our world today, but the bottom line still holds true. Jesus is saying, when you go out as an extension of me, when you go out into the mission of the kingdom, we must go out trusting in God's provision, not our own. And if you want to kind of pull back and think more broadly, perhaps we can glean from this that God is calling you to go and to to testify and he will provide you spiritual provisions. You will not go in your own power. You can go in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, spiritually provided for. But even sometimes when we go out, there is some tangible resources that are needed. Like, I know the Lord wants me to go, but I need resources to purchase that material or resources of time to go and have time to do that. Whatever it is, we must go forward knowing that, well, God will resource. He will provide what is needed. Sometimes we don't go forward as ones who are sent to testify of Jesus because we say, I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have the answers that are necessary. I don't have the arguments. I don't have the, all the information. We must go forward trusting that he will provide whatever knowledge we need. 
maybe even just mental provisions, meaning it takes courage, and I am afraid, but we must go forward trusting that God will provide whatever internal mental strength we need to serve Him well. So Jesus' instructions also included how to relate as to whether or not a village was receptive to the message. It says in verse 10, And he said to them, I knew that was going to happen. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Essentially, Jesus instructs them to do what he just did in response to Nazareth's unbelief. If they receive you well, stay there. Teach them and heal them and deliver them. If they reject you, then move on. Maybe another time. And in Middle Eastern culture, of, certainly of that day, it was not the job of a stranger coming into a village to seek hospitality. It was the job of the villagers to extend hospitality. You know, it occurs to me, just as a quick little side note, I think that's good wisdom for us as a church family. When people come into our church community, a stranger, it's not their job to work out hospitality. It's our job to reach them with love and care and concern. And there is no limit to how well we should be doing that. It is a hurtful thing when I hear accounts of people coming to our church family and they slip away having felt no one extended a hand of friendship, never to return again. Ought not never be. It's our job to extend hospitality, not their job to figure it out. But in that culture, that's what would happen. And so Jesus says this, when you go into a village, if someone invites you into their home, stay with them until your time there has come to a completion. Even if someone offers a better accommodation, don't. Stay with the person that invited you in first. But any place that does not extend a welcoming hand and refuse to listen, then he says, leave. And then there's this language, shake off the dust from your feet as a, as a gesture of their rejection. And maybe that's kind of tied to the, the custom of that day of clean and unclean. That when a Jew would enter into Gentile territory, and then they would leave Gentile territory and kind of cross that boundary, whatever it was. They were to take a moment to shake the dust of that heathen land out of their garments and off their shoes. Maybe Jesus was associating that custom with this counsel of saying, if they refuse to listen, if they reject you in the message, then just shake it off and leave. Because there's somebody somewhere that wants to hear this message. Now, I'm certain the disciples were anxious about being sent out. But they went out just the same, trusting in God. Look at what happened. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people. 
and healing them. The report here in these verses suggests that, that they did find hospitality. They did find people interested in listening to the message and ready to confess belief. And, and the report of, of their experience sounds as if Jesus had been physically with them, but he had not. I don't know where Jesus was at at this time, but they were without Jesus. And yet the things that were happening was as if Jesus were with them. And three things are highlighted. It says, they preached repentance. And the tone of the passage suggests that, and people responded to that invitation to repent and turn towards God. And it says, they drove out demons in the power of Jesus' name. And they anointed those who had faith with oil and miraculous healings were being granted by the grace of God. Clearly, wherever they went around the region of Galilee, they found people who would hear their testimony and were ready to believe. And because of their belief, the power of Christ flowed in amazing ways in repentance and deliverance and restoration. And that is good news for me and you because Jesus is not physically here as he was when he walked among us. But that is not a barrier to the power of Jesus still working in our lives. Even with Jesus not present, through those whom he sends, the power can still be flowing in powerful ways. Listen, our time is short, so I just want you to consider something as we close. This may seem like a ridiculous question, but it's an important question rising from the text. Do you really believe in Jesus. Do you recognize that Jesus is God who took on our humanity in order to offer the world salvation from sin and death with his own death? Because I want you to know this. If you believe in Jesus, then he is working in your life. And sometimes we don't know how to put a, a finger on that. We don't know how to describe it. Sometimes it may not seem like we, we're not recognizing that, that his active power is happening in our lives. And sometimes we see it in, in remarkable ways. But we have to also believe that if I believe in Jesus, I also believe he is active and working in my heart and my mind and on my life. And how that journey lays out. We don't always predict it. We don't know exactly how that moment or that journey takes place. It's up to the wisdom of God. It's up to our belief in Jesus. But we can be sure that if you believe in Jesus, He's blessing your repentant heart and He's covering you with His righteousness. You can be sure that through belief, Jesus is even now delivering you from darkness and establishing you in His light. Through belief in Jesus, you can be just certain that even if it's a slow process, He is healing your brokenness and He is bringing you place of wholeness and restoration. Believe in Jesus and trust that His power is working in your life. But also know this, if His power is working in your life, then He's also calling you to go. Followers of Jesus are sent out as messengers of God's good news. Jesus wants you and me 
to be sent in his provisions as extension of his voice, his hands, his power. And I get it. It is so comfortable to just stick close to Jesus and allow him to just fill us up with his truth and his love. But my friends, Jesus doesn't want you to just sit and soak. Jesus calls you to rise up, to partner up, and to go tell the world, your world, about what he's done for you. There will be those that are ready to hear if you're ready to share. So go. Have faith in God. Watch the power of Jesus through you find those who welcome you in and are willing to listen and ready to also believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray that your word, having been heard today, will prove to be fruitful in our lives. Lord, help us to know how to go and to let others know that belief means you'll work in our hearts and minds. We love you, Lord, and we pray that your kingdom will keep advancing. In your name we pray. Amen.